Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Welcome in on a Tuesday morning. You know, if there's one thing I love, it's summer. I love summer. I had no idea Utah summers would be this glorious when I moved here. I thrive on summer, and I do not want to wish summer away. But there is a part of me that will be happy when we get to July 30 if the NBA is already tipped off. And I know there's a debate going on on whether the NBA should tip off or not, and there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, everybody's got their own reasons, their own motivations, and, and motivations plural. You know, there's more than one thing tugging at people. And, uh, you know, we all weigh those things differently. And I'm not kidding you. I want the NBA to play. There it is. Plain and simple. I want the NBA to play for multiple reasons. Uh, Number one, I enjoy it. Uh, Number two, I think it'll be good for the league and the players and the fans. And number three for the players, and Dwight Howard's name has been put on this, but I don't think he's the only guy. Kyrie Irving's name's been put on it. I don't think he's the only guy. I read a good piece uh, last night in Hoops Hype, Alex Kennedy, and I've, uh, I've tweeted it out. You can find it on my Twitter feed, David DJ James. And it was interesting because what it was was a conversation with Ed Davis, Jazz Backup Center. And he nailed a lot of the points that people are debating. And he also um, answered some of the questions I brought up on TV Sunday night and I brought up on radio Monday morning. You know, we have uh, no real access to jazz players at this point. Occasionally, the team makes a player available on a Zoom call. Uh, But we haven't talked to Donovan Mitchell and we haven't talked to Rudy Gobert. There's probably obvious reasons for that. We did get to talk to Joe Ingles. Um, We did get to talk to uh, we talked to somebody else. I'm trying to think who it was. It was a rotation player they made available. Um, maybe it was Royce O'Neal. Uh, but there's been very limited. No, it was the minivan. That was the minivan. That's who it was. Uh, it was George Niang we spoke to. Um, but there's been very limited chance to get information from these guys. Obviously, we get to talk to Joe on the radio here every week. Uh, these calls have been going on for a while. In retrospect, the first time I heard about a call, I asked Joe about it. And he said, nope, he hadn't been on it. Um, now it's clear a lot of people have been on it. When we get Joe on again this week, we can see if he's you know gone on one of the uh, on one of these other calls, these follow up calls. Uh, but what was really interesting about this story was that Ed Davis did a good job of getting into what everybody was thinking and how he wanted to see things go. Implied in it was that he was weighing in and um, and trying to get guys to see his point of view. He. He came across with pretty clear-cut opinions. He thinks they should play, and he thinks they need the money. And he and he made a he made it a couple times. He made the point in this story, which is more a um, a Q and A type thing as opposed to a story with the writer putting in a bunch of facts and figures and arranging it. It was really just kind of a a Q and A. So he had a you got to read his answers, you know, kind of in depth. No, not really. Maybe there was some light editing going on, but it didn't it didn't read. And I think you'll see this if you read it for yourself. It didn't read like it had been heavily edited. And he, um, and I, I think he made good points because, of course, he agrees with me. That's how we decide if someone is smart or savvy or has a good argument because it's what we think. It's the argument we make. And if someone agrees, we're like, oh, that guy really gets it. He's on point. <laughs> All right, so that's another one of my biases. I'll just admit that one up front. But... Uh, and he also made one point that I didn't see coming, um, but he was fully aware of the salary cap implications. He was fully aware. He, was, he actually talked about Donovan Mitchell. He says a guy like Donovan, and remember, this could be um, 
you know, the same thing that the Jazz are going through with Donovan Mitchell, the Celtics and Jason Tatum. Same draft class. He's going to get a max deal. He said, you know, if, if you don't play, there's a good chance of a lockout. So you lose the money this year. You lose the money next year. And then who knows where the basketball-related income goes, what percentage you get. You could be losing money for generations going forward. And he made a, a strong point. He said, you know, we owe it to the guys who made sure we – Got, and he pointed out that, hey, I'm a 10-year vet, and I've made my money. And yes, I want to make some money this year, but it's not it's not critical in the way it is to some of these younger guys. Um, so he was upfront about that, which I appreciated. And he said that, um, you know, a guy like Donovan Mitchell, which I think we can say, you know, Jason Tatum, too, uh, they could get a $160 million contract, or maybe they get a $90 million contract. You know, what happens if there's a lockout? What does the percentage get dropped to? What does a max contract become? What number is that? Uh, so he pointed out what was at stake there. He brought up, you know, the injury concerns. Um, and I thought that was on point. But he also brought up, you know, we have guys who have a chance to make generational money. And guys have a chance to take that and plow that back into their communities. And, you know, 10, 10 years ago, 20 years ago in sports, we'd see guys make big money, and it would be about conspicuous consumption. And there isn't, you know, it's not that there isn't any of that going on now, but I think there's less of it. You know, I think guys seem to be into investing and building generational wealth on top of generational wealth, right? There was a story last night, Kevin Durant just bought 5% of the Philadelphia Union, and he's got the option to buy another 5%. James Harden did the same thing with the uh, Houston team in, in Major League Soccer. So we're seeing guys start businesses. We're seeing guys start schools, right? LeBron has started a school. Um, we've seen Jordan build up enough wealth. You know, they follow the GOAT, right? He built up enough wealth with his investments uh, to buy an NBA team, right? And advise Charles Barkley, don't take cash, take stock options, and uh, you'll make even more money that way. So uh, Ed Davis was very aware that these guys have a chance to build generational wealth, you know, and, and to look at all the money that could be lost by not playing this year, getting locked out next year, and getting hurt down the road. And he pointed out, hey, guys built the league to get at this point. We have a responsibility now to build it and get it forward. He said some other things about getting caught up in the emotion of the moment. He said, it's easy to understand why that happens and why guys don't want to play to call attention to a problem, but it's probably not the best way to build a problem. And I thought, or best way to solve a problem. And I thought he made a strong point when he said, the issues we're facing are not going to be solved this week or this month. He said, we're looking at issues that are going to take 20 years to solve. I totally believe that. You know, when you're talking about systemic racism, it's not just police brutality. And that's a complicated enough issue. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, we and you, you could talk about that for an hour, all the issues that are faced there. But it's about how the whole legal system works. All, are the laws right? Are, are they staffing properly? And the thing is, the whole legal system... That's a really critical piece, but it's just one piece. Uh, Ed Davis brought up the people uh, living in extreme poverty and crazy situations. You know, people who don't have enough to eat, people who are routinely homeless, kids who are routinely homeless. That happens right here on the Wasatch Front. That happens in every school district on the Wasatch Front, both the hunger and the homelessness. That is an issue. You can say, well, canyons, that's a district on the east side. I've, I have been in a meeting and heard a woman who works in the canyons district say, this school has 50 homeless kids. I write to a student body president. I can't tell you who they are. 
because there's laws against that. Uh, the minors deserve privacy and all that. He says, but she said, I guarantee you there's 50 homeless kids in this school. And it was a wealthy school. And things have changed because of things in the community. That, but that comment was probably about uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, this has been going on for a while. Um, they, they've got uh, a family homeless shelter in that district, uh, the Midvale. Um, the road home has a Midvale place where well, we went this year um, to the shelter there and, and did the annual Christmas deal. That was we were right there, um, right off of I-15 and 7200 South. So there are a lot of issues. I thought I thought Ed Davis did a good job. I would I think you need to read that. Um, yeah, Hoops Hype and Alex Kennedy uh, with the, uh, the Q&A with Ed Davis of the Jazz. All right, got to take a break. Coming up, we've got to uh, get a little golf in with uh, Bob Casper. That's coming up. And uh, Steve Cleveland with some great takes on college basketball and transfers. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. We're joined now by Bob Casper, Real Golf Radio. Bob, good morning. Hey, guys. How you doing? We're doing well. Golf is back, baby. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Couldn't be better. How many hours did you watch? You know, um, I watched a lot on Saturday, on uh, the, the early part of the week, Friday, Saturday, or Thursday, Friday. Um, some on Saturday and some on Sunday. I was playing a little golf tournament yesterday and Saturday myself in the afternoon. Keeping tabs on things, but uh, the first couple of days I watched a lot. So, what'd you think with the no fans? Obviously, that was new. You know, um, I, I was telling Brian on on our show this last weekend. Everything looked the same to me as far as golf is concerned. You know, guys hitting shots, hitting the ball close and stuff. There just were no people on the ropes and no cheers and and that kind of thing. They, you know, they're at at Colonial Country Club. They had they're on the back nine. They had. People have brought in some bleachers so that family could watch from their front porches or their or, the, or their backyards um, across the street or whatever. And you heard some claps every once in a while, but for the most part, no fans. And uh, and it was kind of weird. But uh, but golf, competitive golf, is back. And in the next two or three weeks, it's all going to sort itself out. And then we're going to see um, fans at Jack's tournament memorial. So as you watch them play, I just couldn't help but think, you know, as all of these sports come back, what are they going to look like? You know, how much does this offseason matter to the NFL, and how much do they just have to have these, you know, mini camps because they're making a lot of money and there's time available? You know, how quickly is basketball looking to look like basketball? But golf, you naturally socially distance, and it's an individual sport, so that'll pretty much pick up where they left off, and isn't that basically what it looked like? They picked up where they left off. Yeah, I think... I, I think so. I think it, I think it does. Um, you know, a lot was said about well, they're going to have um, they're going to have stuff at the at the at the tees and at the greens as far as um, you know cleaner and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you've got to be careful. Leave the flag in. You know, you can you can pull it out, um, but you know, clean it off after you're done. The caddies can only carry the bag. The guys have to 
grab the clubs out themselves and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was normal. Um, you know, we didn't see the the hand sanitizer on the tees and the greens. Um, and, you know, as far as shots and with the television were and that kind of thing. But we saw the guys, you know, staying apart. Um, for the most part, uh, the caddies were cleaning off the clubs, you know, cleaning off golf balls. Um, it looked like what we would see with normal golf. And, and I think because it's outside and because it's the type of game, it's an individualized sport, we're going to continue to see it. And, uh, and, and it's going to look more and more normal as time goes along. What did you think of the little thing they had between the nines of the microphone there and the camera and players speaking into it as they were basically in the middle of the round? Well, I, you know, um, they do some stuff like that on the PGA Tour Champions where they'll talk to the players as they're walking down the fairway. Um, I, I think uh, they were trying to do some things to yeah, make the broadcast a little bit more lively. I know Justin, or not Justin Thomas, but Ricky Fowler was mic'd up a little bit. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that as, you know, you know, times are changing in this world uh, with everything that's gone on. And I think to be more interactive, um, I think, you know, some players are going to be mic'd up as they're playing their rounds and stuff. We saw it happen with, with a couple of uh, exhibition matches over the last few weeks, you know, with Phil Mickelson and Brady and, Tiger and Peyton Manning and, and the guys the week before him. Um, and and I think it's good. I, I like hearing what's going on. I like the interaction, interaction between the player and the caddy as they're figuring out what they're trying to do and where they're trying to hit the ball and, and you know, if a putt breaks a certain way, that kind of thing. I think that's all great and, and, and interesting stuff for the fan that likes to view golf. So I think we're going to see more and more of it, PK. Um and, you know, to get to get the guys' feelings when they're coming through nine, you know, some guys are going to be happy about it. Some guys aren't going to be happy about it. But uh, for the most part, I thought it was good. Is this, going to, uh, is this trend uh, going to continue into majors or the stakes so high there, whether it's a microphone and a camera at nine or wearing something uh, during the round, it's just not going to fly? Yeah, I don't think it'll happen in major championships. Um, maybe it could happen in like a Ryder Cup setting, um, but as far as majors are concerned, like you said, the stakes are way too high. The guys are not going to want to be bothered with anything like that. And, um, you know, you're talking about a green jacket or a U.S. Open trophy or a British Open trophy, Claret Jug, or, um, you know, or a PGA Championship. Um, so I don't think that'll happen. But, but if, if, I, if it creeps in anywhere, I think it's going to be in the Ryder Cup. So what'd you think about Hercules DeChambeau averaging 345 yards off the tee? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Does he look thick or what? I mean, I saw pictures of him from, from a year ago to this year, and, you know, he's put on golf. Like, I know he's, he was boasting he put on 20 pounds of muscle during the three months they were off for COVID. And I know in, during the off season last year, he put he boasted putting on twenty pounds. So he's he's saying he put on forty pounds of muscle, and I'll tell you what he's proved it with how far he's hitting the golf ball, three hundred and forty five yards, and it's it's pretty scary because he still has his touch. Um, he's he's hitting a lot of good shots. He put himself right in the mix of everything um, and had an opportunity to win the golf tournament, but uh, he's just hitting the ball so far. It's crazy. 
So well, you got to have 525 yard par fours, then, right? That's got to be kind of just become routine on the PGA Tour. Well, 500 yard par fours are, are routine in, in uh, especially major championships. Um, yeah, uh, you, you got you got a couple of those every time you play a golf course in a major championship. Um, they they stretch them out as far as they can and and put those in there because the guys are just hitting the ball so far. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like uh, Jordan Spieth. A few years ago, he was hitting two, I think he was averaging around 290, 294, something like that. And this week, and yeah, it's dry and the fairways are running a little bit and that kind of thing. But he was averaging like 315, 317 off the tee. You know, that's that's almost, that's that's over 10 yards further than what he's normally used to. And so, you know, the guys are the guys are getting stronger. They're working out hard, um, and they're able to uh, transfer that into how far they hit the golf ball off the tee and how close they get to the greens. Okay, so I'm reading a story by Colin, well, not by Colin Montgomery. It's quoting him, and he says, I'm an advocate of what Jack Nicholas proposes, a tournament golf ball for professionals that goes only 80 to 85% as far. The time has come because we can't build, keep building courses at 10,000 yards. <laughs> and he goes on about that, and I'm sure you're aware of it. What do you think about that, though? Well, I don't think golf courses will ever get to 10,000 yards. That's a, quite a bit of an exaggeration. Um, I mean, you look at major championship courses when they tip them out, you know, they might get to 7,800 yards. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, 8,000, 8,500 yards is probably going to be on the extreme level. They're not going to ever get close to 10,000 yards. Um, but I understand what they're saying about the golf ball. The problem I have with it is if, if you limit a golf ball to 85% of where it's going right now, the long guys are still going to have the advantage over the short guys. The short guys are going to hit it shorter, and the long guys are going to still be able to um, to hit it out there and get it get it close to the greens. So, um, you know, you can't fault a guy for going out and working on his um, on his physical strength and everything to try to be able to hit the golf ball further and because that's where the game's going. The game's going towards that, that bomb and gouge uh, where you bomb it off the tee, and if you hit it in the rough, it doesn't matter because you're closer. I think what you have to do is condition golf courses and make them more difficult so that when a guy does not hit a fairway, it becomes more penal for him to get the ball onto the green. So I think setups where fairways aren't as wide, where rough is thicker, um, where it's it's harder to extract the golf ball out of the rough to get it onto the green and to, and to help it stay on the green, um, so they just can't be throwing darts and and uh, and hitting shots out of the rough close to the hole to make a bunch of birdies. So I think um, it, it has a lot to do with golf courses. It has a lot to do with the player, but you can't fault the player for for becoming stronger and and more physically fit. That's just the, the nature of the game. I think uh, rolling the golf ball back so far is it would be a, a detriment to the guys that are playing on tour. So you think that means kind of what we've seen at the Masters where they've been known to plant trees or bushes or whatever, or you think hourglass fairways where the landing area is pretty, pretty wide and safe at 280 or 290, but out at 310 or 320 there's a trap or deep rough. That kind of stuff is what's going to have to be done? 
Yeah, you're, you're just going to have to uh, put make golf courses um, become more <laughs> become more difficult off the tee. Um, like you said, um, DJ, you know, um, make it so that if you're going to try and cut a corner or something like that, you've got a bunker out at 320 um, or, or a series of bunkers that start at 300 and go out to 320, you know, two or three of them. Um, I know that Bryson DeChambeau was 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 carrying the ball 327 to 330 off the tee this week, and that's I, I mean that's that's crazy how far that how far the ball's going. But I think you do things like you said, hourglass shape, not just straight um, straight line fairways. Um, I think. Uh, I think you just you just make it a little bit more difficult where guys have to think a little bit more on how they get their golf ball around the golf course um, and uh, and make it equitable for all the players in the field, the guys that hit it short as well as the guys that hit it long. So Spieth had a hot streak, and we all saw that. But yep. Spieth as a good player is real, but Spieth as a superstar is a false narrative. Well, you know, um, currently, I, w- I would agree with you. You know, you think of him in 2015 when, when he won the Masters, he won the U.S. Open, he had a chance to make it into the playoff and missed the playoff at the British Open, um, and he finished second at the PGA Championship. You know, that's, that's a crazy, stupid year in, in, in the game of golf where he had a chance to complete the career grand slam all in one year. And then, uh, you know, you, you see he's got two out of three major championships. The only one he needs before getting the career Grand Slam now is, um, is the PGA Championship. Um, you've seen him, we've seen him play phenomenal golf. He's a phenomenal putter. Um, and I think the off, off um, time during COVID-19 uh, for the three months, I think, did him extremely well shooting 65, 65, 68, one shot back, and then unfortunately he didn't play well in the final round and shot 71. But, uh, but I think we're going to see more of him. Uh, yeah, top 10 finish this, this week coming off of not really playing all that well all year long. And I think we're going we're gonna to start seeing more of him. It's a great week this coming week. With, uh, they're playing at Hilton Head at, at Heritage. Um, and... Um, this is a golf course that, that lines right up with him. He's going to play again this week. There's going to be, a, you know, the top five playing again this week. We're going to see a lot of guys, a lot of good players over the next little bit because the schedule now is stacked between now, June, and all the way through September with, um, with a major in August, a major in September, the Ryder Cup in September, then the Masters in November, and guys have to get themselves into the into the um, tour championship and the playoffs by the end by the end of the season. So guys are going to be playing a lot of golf, the best players. So basically, what we're saying at Spieth is he can be a star, but he can be Phil. He can't be Tiger. Yeah, you know I, the thing about Spieth, Jordan is he's young enough that um, you don't write him off right now. Um, he's not in his superstar category right now. But Jordan Spieth is a guy that can carry the torch for the PGA Tour, just like Rory, just like Justin Thomas, just like uh, you know Brooks Koepka, 
um, possibly Tony Finau if he gets on a run and starts winning golf tournaments. Um, and uh, I, I don't think Jordan Spieth, you can count him down and out. Uh, I think he's, he's a guy that's going to come back. He's going to work hard at it, and he's got plenty of time. He's got 11 tour wins and three majors. He's 26, so he does have a lot of time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of time, and he's a guy that's going to get to that milestone of 20 wins on the PTA Tour where you become lifetime exempt. The most recent to do that has been Dustin Johnson. I could see him getting to, you know, can he get to 5 and 40? I guess we can discuss that. Maybe he can and maybe he can't. But that's Phil. And then Tiger's out there at 15 and 82. Yeah, he's not getting 82. there. 82. Yeah, yeah. He's not, not getting there. You know, both, both those guys, both those guys, of course, are – uh, have had remarkable careers, especially Tiger. You know, he's uh, he's he's trying to get to where Jack was, and he's already gotten to where Sam Snead is. Um, you know, Phil, if Tiger wouldn't have come along, Phil probably would have won a lot more tournaments, and he's over he's over 40 with, with the amount of majors that he has with only a U.S. Open to try to get his career Grand Slam. But for any of those younger guys, there's too much – there's too many young guys in the game – that are phenomenal players. You know, Rory's at 18 wins. Um, Jordan's at, what, 11. Justin Thomas, I think, has 12. Um, You know, these guys will all pull wins in every year, and and it's going to keep somebody from just really bombing out there and getting 30 or 40 wins, I think. Bob, we appreciate it as always. We'll hear you Saturday morning on Real Golf Radio. Sounds good, guys. Thanks. I appreciate coming on with you. There's Bob Casper, Real Golf Radio. Good show. Love having Bob and Brian on the air, and we'll get them on the air as we get uh, closer to the majors here. All right, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk with our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. Brandon Averett transferring from UVU to BYU. The Cougars really cleaning up on the transfers. Uh, now a lot of them do have UVU ties, so that's uh, you know that's a little different, and it, and it won't last because obviously with every passing year, Mark will have coached Mark Pope will have coached fewer players at UVU and be able to attract them over to BYU. So maybe it's a little bit of a one-off, but it really does go to how things are transferring. Averett's going to be on his third school here. He started Oklahoma State, was there for a couple of years, transferred to UVU, played a year there. Now he's going to get a senior season as a grad transfer at BYU. Uh, and I think it's really interesting talking to Steve here, and we'll get into this, about you know coaching. And yes, you have to know a lot about basketball, a lot about X's and O's, but how much is it about relationships? How much is it about being a psychologist? How much is it about managing expectations? And the old school coach who yells and you know makes kids play, break them down and build them back up. Okay, well, 1985 called, and <laughs> they want their coach back, and you might as well give him to him because he's not going to be real useful in 2020. You, you just can't treat kids like that and talk to kids. And that style, once upon a time, it worked for some coaches, but it's not going to work now. You know, Now you got to be a psychologist and have a relationship and be really tuned in to what kids are feeling because they grow up in AAU ball, they change teams every year, they don't think anything of it. There it is. We'll talk with Steve Kleen about that next on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. 
from Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. It's time to talk basketball with our insider, Steve Cleveland, and he is the exact right guy to talk to at a time like this because he knows what coaches went through, and even though he's retired, he talks to active coaches, and he knows what they're going through, and it's changing, and it's changing rapidly. And Brandon Averett, is uh, right on the front lines of all this. The guy, uh, guy's transferred from UVU to BYU as a grad transfer, and uh, you know, Steve, I'm you're our insider. You talk to people. You hear what's going on. What have you heard? What do you know? I, the only thing that I mean, I've had a couple of conversations, and again, uh, he gives you depth at the point guard, um, and, and he does. You know, he's athletic. He's quick, and and he can create. And the nice, the nice thing is. You know, he's averaged 12 or 13 points a game in the WAC. Uh, he played in the community. He's already lived in, you know, Utah. And so the acclimating part of it's going to be real easy. And that's what they've been needing. I mean, they've been trying to find him. I mean, Alex Barcello obviously can play the point, but now he can also play some two. And um, Brandon Averick could be, you know, he can play a lot of minutes at the point guard as well. So it was a piece that they've been trying to get. I know that. And I don't know all the people that they were involved with, but. You start looking at it. I mean, for the transfer, you start with Jake Toulson, who had a huge impact, and now you're talking about you know Wild Lowell who sat out, and Brandon Avert who was, who was a grad transfer, and Richard Harward. So there's going to be quite a UVU presence there. I mean, four of those players are all going to play significant minutes. So it's it's a need they had. It was probably uh, I know they were looking at a lot of other people, but this one they probably had in their back pocket all the time, and knowing that if you know if we couldn't get this or you know, whoever they were trying to get, uh, he, he's going to be a nice addition. And he doesn't have to adjust to a coaching staff. He knows half the team. Uh, and he's living in a town that he's already, you know, played in. So the transition will be pretty smooth. I was thinking about Mark Pope and his desire to just seems like he's chasing just about every grad transfer that's out there. And I was wondering, you know, is that the way to go? Because, you know, first year to second year, it's going to be a drastically different team with all the seniors. And then you've got a couple of seniors that you've already recruited and they're going to be gone next year. But then I thought, well... That's really the way of the world at BYU because of the mission program. You got guys coming and going, guys who say, no, I'm not going. Then they get in that environment, and then they decide they are going to go. You know, Kamar did that. I think you were the coach at the time. So you're just juggling guys left and right. So really, this is just par for the course if you're going to be a BYU coach. No, there's no question about that. And and we found that out pretty early when we were there. And I don't I don't think I think probably when we came in transfers were just an absolute must because there was really not a team there. And but we we learned very quickly that junior college transfers or you know and we didn't have grad transfers back then. That wasn't part of the of the equation. But we we knew that as young men would leave high school and go right on missions that you know they're gone two years and then it takes at least another year for them to get situated that we had to be able to fill in the holes and fill in the blanks. And I, and I think that's what Mark's doing. So I, I, I think with the, you know, if, if in fact a year from now the transfer portal becomes a situation where they don't even have to sit so you get a freebie, 
man, that even enhances. And, and the, the nice thing is that, the, for a, like we've talked about this before, but you're talking about great facilities, great fan base. There's a, you know, they've had a great history here over over the years. Had a lot of success. Uh, I think the the university and this coaching staff have done amazing stuff with social media and, and uh, promoting the program. So I, I think the transfers are going to be a part of this program for a long time. And as long as and again, the mission isn't going away. Uh, so when you have, I think this year they've got <clears throat> three young men going on missions that they sign. They'll come back and they'll get involved in the program. And, and, and you know, Pat, you know, you've been in my office before. We would we'd sit yeah. down and you put that depth chart out. It'd go out eight, nine years. Yeah. You know, I mean, eight or nine years. And, and you go, yeah, well, he's going to come here and this is what's what's going to happen so uh, you know someone like Brandon can come in for a year give them the help they need and somebody else pops back in you know they've got I think Hunter Erickson got off his mission uh, so you know we'll see what happens there Uh, they didn't have a lot of kids coming off missions but they got all the pieces they need for this year I think excuse me and uh, I you know and I we talked a little bit about Caleb Lohner last time but they've, they've got you got nine or ten guys that are pretty solid and and, and they're versatile, and guys can play multiple positions. But certainly that UVA, the UVU presence really helped Mark and his staff because they had relationships with those guys, and they're going to all be impact players. Every one of those guys is going to be an impact player in the program. I think, but I don't know that all transfers aren't created equal. I think when you have to sit out a year, it gives you a chance to get in the program. You know, build relationships with coaches and with teammates, absorb the system and all that, and kind of get into the flow and build some chemistry. When you have a grad transfer, or if they change the rule here and guys are just coming in, that seems like an enormous challenge if you don't have a core of guys who are in the program year to year. What do you think about that balance of transfers versus guys who are in a second or a third year on, on the team? There's no question that is really important, and 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 if they they're, they're sitting and they're just coming in, and, and whether they're coming for a year or two or three, uh, I think one of the things that Mark and his staff and everybody, and you know, and it's part of kind of the culture of this program is they they talk a lot about the locker room, and uh, you know, I'm you and I aren't in the locker room, but I think one of the things that having those five or six seniors last year. They were able to create an environment in the locker room, and, and that's something they talk about all the time. I mean, that, that's part of who they are. And I think when you're going to bring in transfers, you need to have a core group of guys who understand what the expectations are. And it's, it's really helpful if they're your, your better players. And I'm looking right now at, at, at a core group of guys. And while Lowell, you know, he, Gavin Baxter's been, he's going to be in the program. Richard Harward is going to be in there for a couple of years. Uh, you know, you got some guys that are in the program that were actually part of the UVU program. So the transition has been easier over time. That is definitely something you have to pay attention to uh, because when you bring people in, and, and the other issue is this, is that sometimes we can make mistakes, and, and sometimes you miss on guys. Sometimes guys get hurt. Sometimes they don't play out or plan out. And especially when you get, you know, they've got a couple of junior college guys here. There's Spencer Johnson from Salt Lake City. you got Gideon George. You know, Gideon George is an athletic, long guy that can help him defensively. You know, Spencer Johnson, all of a sudden now, Brandon Averick probably comes in and takes some, some minutes. Does Caleb Loner come in as a freshman? Is he good enough to come in here and play minutes? So the challenges that you have when you bring in transfers, you basically are making a commitment to them. 
you're letting them know where they kind of fit in the program. But when things don't work out and guys don't pan out or they don't play as well as they can and somebody else comes in, then then you get the reverse effect of transfers where people start leaving and you know and all of a sudden it's not the knight in shining armor. So you have to manage that. You have to manage that, and uh, and you can have too many people. And the, the hardest thing to manage is when you go in at BYU, for me, was when we would go in and we would recruit a freshman, and they would go on a mission for two years. And then in the meantime, we brought in junior college guys or other players. And when those, when those young people got back into the program, they weren't ready to play. They weren't competitive enough. And consequently, at times, they would leave because there wasn't an opportunity to play. So you have to continue to go forward and recruit at BYU. And transfers right now seem to be the best option that they have to fill in the blanks when young people go away on missions. But it can be managed, and it was always, it took, you know, you'd have staff meeting, you sit down there, and you go through this chart, and you start looking at what's going to happen the next seven or eight years. But that being said, as much as you thought it was going to play out that way, seldom did it ever did that ever happen. Because people do leave, and sometimes people get into a program where they realize, hey, you know what, this is a place I really wanted to go, but they've got two or three people at my spot who are really good players. I want to go somewhere where I can play. It's not a matter of of, of coaches bringing in four guys at the same position. It's just a matter sometimes that guys don't develop like you think they're going to develop, and, and there is a little bit of guesswork. There's not a lot of guesswork on transfers. We know, they know, Brandon Averett scored 12.8 points a game, played minutes at Oklahoma State. He's kind of a sure thing. It doesn't matter. Uh, they've seen him up close and personal. They know he can come in and help Alex Barcello, who will probably play the one and two. you got Connor Harding. You know, now all of a sudden, oh, you know, Wyatt Lowell ends up playing some three. The, the lineup looks like you're looking at it going, okay, this thing's really solid. And I think there's a... They do have a few seniors, but they, they've got a lot of underclassmen as well. I can't remember if I asked you or if we asked you about this, so if I have, forgive me, but I'm gonna, I want to get your thought on it now. This loner kid, you brought him up a couple of times, so obviously you know about him, and I know you talked about him because you had an opportunity of uh, meeting him and his, I think his folks, you told us. But what do you think about a coach being, I don't want to say under an obligation, but whatever it might be in terms of, like for Larry at Utah, to release the kid. What, what is your thought on releasing a player uh, in this situation? Well, you know, and that's going to change differently with every person. I, and, and I don't know any of the circumstances. I, I was actually surprised, and we did talk about this, uh, that, that Caleb went to Utah. Uh, but I do believe it was during the transition with Coach Rose, and uh, and there was some unknowns about who would come in and coach and what the circumstances are. But that being said, I always kind of felt like Caleb Loner was probably, you know, just based upon my conversations, he was going to BYU. His dad played there. Seemed to be kind of a natural thing. I think the one thing as a coach, and I, you know, if I am, I'm in Larry's situation, and, uh, you know, you're always trying to do what's best for the kids, but you have to do what's best for the program as well. And that, that hurts the University of Utah. And and and, the, and I think the question you have to ask yourself: how, how did this happen? What were the circumstances? What's the situation? What's it driven by? How did this How did this all come about? Well, when you're the head coach and you're losing a player, you're gonna, you're going to want to find out every situation and circumstance that went on. Why did Why did this happen? 
what are the circumstances, what was involved, and 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 then you're you're going to make it. To, they can't replace Caleb Loner. That's the thing. They're they're not going to. It's too late to replace him. If if he was in their plans this year to play significant minutes, you know you you can understand why a coach or a coaching staff would be upset about losing the guy. And whatever the circumstances were, maybe he just changed his mind and decided, I want to go to BYU. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It, it makes it really difficult. Right now, it seems that the culture in the country is, when this happens, people just let them go. The, the culture with transfers, you know, the fact that we're going to probably see here within 12 months, you can now transfer to a different school and, and not have to sit out. So that whole environment has changed. I mean, for me, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm the coach that's losing a, a, a four-star guy that can probably come in and score 12 or 13 points, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to be, you know, angry. I mean, this is my livelihood. This is our program. We're counting on this guy. Uh, but then again, you don't want someone in your program that doesn't want to be there. And so uh, if, if I had heard that, you know, and, and I read something recently this week that, I don't think Larry was real supportive of releasing him, but whether this is true or not, but the word on the street was kind of the athletic director stepped in and said, Dana, we're not doing that. If kids don't want to be here, just release them. So I don't know what happened, but I can certainly understand how Coach Krasoviak could feel, and, and that's the sense that it hurt his team. And you know what? This is not right. It's not fair. And I can also understand as an athletic director maybe stepping in and going, listen, we, we can't go there because it, it could happen to us and somebody decides to come our way. I, I don't know. I mean, I know how I would feel if I was Larry, and I know how I would feel if a really good player, and I was at BYU, Mark Pope said, hey, this kid's coming. You know, it just depends where you're – the perspective is whether you're the coach losing a guy or getting him. But uh, I, I, it wouldn't have surprised me if they told me, hey, they're not releasing him. This – there was something going on here, and whatever the circumstances might have been, I, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. That's the way it is. You'll have to sit. But it doesn't sound like that's what's going to happen. The athletic director seems like he stepped in. and but So I, I understand all the feelings and the emotions that come into that from both, both sides. And uh, I, I, that's part of the rules. That's what you do when you sign somewhere. You, you sit out. And, but, the again, it, it's the – the landscape of college basketball is changing. And, and, and for really, to be honest with you, the, the young people, the, their, their rights are more protected now. I mean, they can go and transfer and possibly not sit out in a year from now. That protects them. They make mistakes. And um, they're kind of like free agents. And, uh, but a, a letter of intent and a commitment has to mean something. However, I do understand circumstances sometimes do change. And, uh, and and decisions like that are going to be made. But it's a tough deal, you know, depending on what side of you. Is he either really happy or not very happy at all? And I think for Chris Kosoviak, they're looking for shooting. They needed a guy that could, could score from the perimeter. They'll, you know, I think they lost the one kid anyway. So this, is, this has to hurt a little bit. Got to sting. This has been trending for coaches for a while, but this just kind of underlines it. So, number one, you've got to be – really in tune with what all of your players are thinking. And number two, you you really got to be a psychologist or your program's going to empty of talent really quickly. Yep. I, I completely agree. And I, and I think being transparent, you know, you go to, you go in recruiting and when you're recruiting, you're putting your, you know, your, 
your best foot forward. You're showing all the wonderful things about our program. You, you, I don't think you can go in and recruit now and not show a young man or a young woman in recruiting what their role is going to be, where we see you developing, where we see you at. And, and you're having that conversation in the home, on the, on the visit. Here's what we see happening in circumstances and situations. Well, things happen. You know, all of a sudden, you know, an all-high school All-American who's been, you know, at UCLA decides, he want, you know, he wants to come to University of Utah or BYU or whatever. Those things do happen. There are surprises. But you have to constantly be having those conversations. And, and they have to be transparent. And they have to be very open. And, and, and I think that to be successful in this day and age, you have to be a great communicator. And you've got to be able to communicate with the parents and the, the high school coaches and everybody associated with that young man being very honest, knowing that sometimes it's not going to work out. But don't let it be because you never had a conversation. Don't let it be because uh, we weren't being truthful or honest or we just wanted to, you know, we wanted to have, instead of having three wings, we, I mean two wings, we decided we needed a third one. I don't think you can overstock anymore because as soon as a young man sees he's not going to play, they're going to leave, you know, and, and not necessarily after a year. But if somebody's in a program for a couple of years, it, it, of course you should leave. If you're there in a program two years and you're not playing, and even though you like the school, but basketball is really important to you, you've got to really consider a transfer, finding a place. And because circumstances do change and the landscape of recruiting is so up and down that you, programs can get really good players when they didn't expect to get a player, and, and how can you not play a guy that decides he wants to come to your place? So it's, it's complicated, and it's, you have to, but you're right. David, you, you, you have to stay on top of it. You have to constantly be talking to everybody involved. You can't assume anything, and, and you've got to have a sense and a feel for parents and those kind of things. And I remember, I mean, I remember having conversations, and, I mean, it was, for us, things were changing so rapidly, and, and, and it, 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 that's not what's happening here. I mean, our situation was so unique that we were trying to just get people to come into the program initially. And then all of a sudden we started getting good players and some of the guys that were there could see that their role was going to change. And so we, we had to sit down and say, listen, here, here's the circumstances and you haven't done anything wrong here and we're not taking a scholarship from you, but it's, you know, it's, it's a situation. If you want to really play, you, you probably need to go somewhere else, but that wouldn't have been after two months. Or, or a semester would be more than likely after a year or two where you give a guy a chance, every chance he can. And uh, so those, those are hard things, really hard things. And there's a lot of pressure on everybody to be successful. I think, you know, the loner thing to me, uh, uh, I kind of understand it, but he, here's a situation where I think BYU was a place he really was thinking about going, coaching chains, things happen. And then he sits there and watches BYU kind of have a special year. And in, in his heart, he's saying, man, that's where I really want to be. Uh, should he be accountable, held accountable for that decision? Uh, yeah, there will be people that would tell you that he should be held accountable for that decision. You make a commitment, you stay with it. There are others that say, you know what, this is a free world, and uh, I want to go what's best going to help me in my situation and circumstance. So there's an argument on both sides. Uh, but when you're on the side of, losing a really good player, uh, it hurts your program. Not sometimes, not just for a year, but a year or two, because you passed on guys that you normally would have taken. Now you got to go back and find those guys through a transfer portal 
or uh, a junior college guy. Steve, as always, we appreciate it, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. All right, fellas. Have a great week. He's our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. He joins us every week, and we love having him on because he's having off-the-record conversations with people who trust him at multiple schools. And by the way, when he drops a phrase like the word on the street, I got to tell you, Whatever you've seen, you know, the little old ladies gossiping at church or the kids who gossip at school lunch and talk about, you know, who's dating who and who was out at whatever party. Basketball coaches. Oh, my gosh. Now, if you're not into it, you say they're gossiping. If you are into it, you say they're talking shop. (laughs) But either way, word spreads and it spreads quickly and they talk and they're a tight knit group. And, you know, they, you, you work with somebody and they move on and you're still tight with them, but it's just circumstances drive you apart. But what happens is guys you work with start changing teams and changing leagues. And pretty soon, if you do this for a while, if you do this for 10 or 15 years, you got a network throughout the country. Okay. I don't coach and I got a network into multiple leagues. I can show up at, uh, at an NCAA tournament and see someone who's working in one league and know him from another league. I can show up uh, at the Jazz Summer League and see a former coach who's coached in three different leagues and is now scouting for the pros. And everybody stays in touch and everybody likes to talk. So when he says something like that, your ears should perk up because you're getting the dirt. You are getting the latest info. And especially now that they can text, you don't even have to talk. You can text and hear incredible, well, read incredible things. All right. Steve Cleveland, love having him on. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.